morning, everybody. I say it one more time for the folks in the back. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Like after I said, my name is Gino Allison, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Special welcome to those of you who might be visiting with us for the very first time. If you're new, we especially want to extend a warm welcome to you. And as always, we want to say hello to our virtual audience. We're so glad to have you uh, watching us virtually. And so we're glad you're here as well. And I also want to just tag on to whatever said about small groups. Small groups are really important in the life of our church. And so those of you who are new uh, to the SSV, it's one of the ways to go deeper in community, to find out what we're about, and actually to, um, to make friends and to actually shrink the church. And so if you're new and wondering how to plug in, the best and easiest way is to engage small groups. I do want to plug one small group, not just because it's the one I'll be leading, but because it is a group based on the Alpha Course. And some of you have heard of, of the Alpha Course. And the Alpha Course focuses on Christian basics. It's a course for those who are seekers, those who are interested in faith. They're just peeking in the window trying to figure out what it's about. It's especially useful to those who are new to faith, those who have made new commitments to follow Jesus or who have made recommitments. And it's also good for the seasoned believer as well. And so if you are interested in engaging Christian basics, especially if, you've, if you're new to faith, or you've recently come to faith here or someplace else, this is the small group for you. It's a condensed course because we'll be doing it in a small group format. It'll be meeting here at the church uh, on uh, Tuesday nights. If you're interested, you can go to the website, and uh, our website, and, and, and sign up for it by emailing, by, um, clicking on my name and sending an email, or you can just show up. But I think this will be a really good opportunity for us to go deeper together in community. Amen? This is also day 18, if I'm not losing my count of our 30-day fast, and I'm grateful to be engaging in this fast with our community here. I know it's challenging to give up those things that uh, compete with God for your attention and your affection, and some of you are wondering if you're going to continue. Some of you have secretly or not so secretly fallen off of the wagon. We've got some days yet to go, and so it's not too late to engage it or to re-engage it, but there's something powerful that happens in the life of our church, especially as we march toward Holy Week, especially as we march toward Resurrection Sunday uh, and Good Friday. There's something powerful that I believe happens in the life of our church when we are seeking God together, right? And so wherever you are on your fasting journey, feel free to lean into that thing with us today. Well, let me get into the Word this morning. Today I have the privilege of continuing a teaching series that I started a couple of weeks ago, a teaching series that we're simply calling Good Fights. Good Fights. And as we've said week after week, when we say good fights, we don't mean a good, like, juicy, entertaining fight. Uh, we mean a good fight as in a noble fight, a worthwhile fight, a just fight, one that honors God. We've been pointing week to week, uh, week after week, to Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where he urges Timothy to fight the what? Good fight. And while that phrase, while that command, or that urging is packed with truth, minimally it implies if there are good fights, if there are worthwhile fights, if there are fights that God would be pleased with, there are also bad fights. Fights that don't rise to the level of being worth your reputation worth your limited energy and resource, there are bad fights or fights that you shouldn't engage. And we all can agree that it can take quite a bit of time and Christian maturity to figure out which fights are worth fighting and what fights are just 
knucklehead stuff. And as humans, especially as Christian humans, we are urged to avoid the knucklehead stuff. The scriptures don't say that explicitly, but it's implied as you look through the text. And scripture is full, rich, brimming with stories, wisdom, and instruction on how to know which is which. What's a good fight and what is the knucklehead stuff? And this wisdom and instruction will help you, if you lean into it, figure out how to engage conflict, how to engage these good fights, whether it be in your family situation, your vocational situation, and out in the marketplace. And so far, we uh, have looked at the time the story of David and Goliath in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 17. Last week, we looked uh, on Baptism Sunday at the fight of your life, the fight against the sinful flesh. And this morning, we're uh, uh, going to the Gospels, right? The Gospel of John. Um, we're going to look at a scuffle that Jesus gets into. And some of you say, Jesus gets into a scuffle? Yes, Jesus, your Savior, your Master, the incarnate deity, got into a scuffle. And as you could probably guess, it was a good fight. And it was one that is worth taking a close look at. And so I'm simply calling this message this morning a ruckus at the temple. A ruckus at the temple. And I'd like you to meet me in John chapter 2. John chapter 2. I'm going to start at verse 13. I'm going to look at a ruckus, which just means a noisy fight or disturbance that Jesus himself gets into. And we're going to examine why it was a good fight. John chapter 2, where you find that uh, in your Bibles, please note that there are also Bibles on the edges of your rows. Feel free to use those as you engage with the text today. If you don't have a Bible at home, by the way, that you understand, feel free to take those Bibles home as a gift from us to you. You can also engage with the text through your mobile device or your phones or your tablets. We'll also be projecting it on the screens. Meet me in John chapter 2 while you find that. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for yet another opportunity to stand on this stage and to preach your word. I don't take it for granted. I know this opportunity, this task is sacred. And I ask, Lord, that today you would visit us in the ways that only you can. Lord, I come to you this morning as we're nestled here in safety and in relative comfort while tornadoes have ravaged some portions of the South, violence and unrest upset the world around us, we know that you're still on the throne. And as we've gathered here today with your people and your name, we pray that you would lead us, that you would teach us. As I often pray, Lord, would you put power on these words you've given me to speak? Would you move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and your light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 John chapter 2, I'm starting at verse 13. It reads this way. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes, that's interesting, and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. 
But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What, they exclaimed? It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body, and after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. This is the word of the Lord. We got a good one today, a ruckus in the temple. It's action-packed. It's full of conflict and intrigue. It's interesting because Jesus seems to go out of his character in this ruckus that we see in the temple. This story begins with Jesus going to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals, the Jewish Passover. Josephus, who is a Jewish historian and a contemporary with the gospel authors, writes that on Passover, the population in Jerusalem would swell to more than two million as Jewish pilgrims from all over converged on uh, Jerusalem to celebrate and observe the Passover. And so the town would be over double its population on this particular occasion. And so this is important because this is when Jesus rolls up on this scene at the temple. And when he arrives, he sees something that seems to really set him off, to really upset him, to really agitate him. It really annoys him. And what ensues is a real ruckus, a brouhaha, a commotion, a fracas, a racket, a hullabaloo. Call it what you will. It's a commotion. And Jesus is in the middle of it. He's not just in the middle of it. He causes it. And for some of us, this goes against our Christian sensibilities. This goes against the picture of the really nice, solemn, peaceable, blue-eyed Jesus sitting there in that picture holding a lamb. This goes against the child-loving Jesus that in your mind just skips through fields and picks flowers and tells beautiful parables. This cuts against the grain of our picture of Jesus. Well, uh, it cuts against the grain of mine a little bit too until I start to really understand who Jesus is and what he'd come to do. I think we must start with a basic understanding that Christ is eternally sinless and good. He is, after all, the gold standard for everything right, our eternal example, the gold standard for morality and goodness. And we need to carefully examine the basis for what seems like an extreme reaction from our merciful Savior. And how might this apply to our life? How might this inform our understanding of what's a good fight and what's the knucklehead stuff? There are at least four things that jump out of this that I want to walk through this text with you this morning. The first is that Jesus gets physical. Jesus gets physical. If you're like me, if you can pick a sentence out of your sort of weekly routine that you say a lot, I got four boys, somebody's always touching somebody, and if I had a million dollars, no, if I had a dollar for every time I said, don't touch anybody, I'd be a rich man. I mean a really rich man, because somebody's always touching somebody. 
and all the trouble, all the scuffles, all the fights that I have to break up, they usually trace back to what? Somebody touching somebody. Somebody got physical with somebody, and I'm always having to intervene. And so my interest is piqued when Jesus gets physical. This was, after all, a pronounced physical altercation. Don't let anybody tell you different. Don't let anybody file the hard edge off of this conflict. Jesus was all the way turned up, as the kids say. Verse 14 says, in the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers uh, at tables exchanging foreign money. And he snaps, so it seems. Verse 15 tells us he fashions a whip. This takes time. He could have cooled off in the time that it took him to, to fashion this whip, and yet his anger didn't subside. He fashions this whip and takes to whipping folks up out of the temple, scattering the animals, the scripture tells us, chasing them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep, the cattle, scattered the money changers, coins. Can you picture the upsetting scene? And he goes over and he flips tables. Your Jesus is flipping tables. And he also says, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Now, forgive me, but in my mind's eye, I, pl I put all these words together and I put together a little movie. I don't want to take any liberties with the text this morning. I just want to let you in on what I'm imagining as I read these words. He's got a whip in his hand. We know he's swinging it liberally, but he's also saying something. And I imagine that Jesus is giving out one of those syllable spankings. You ever had a syllable spanking? That's like one lick per syllable. And I imagine that with every swing, Jesus is saying, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into this. That's, that's how I imagine. I'm not saying syllable spanking should happen. I'm just saying they happened. <laughs> and in my mind's eye, Jesus is upset. And you're thinking, what? That's in the Bible? Jesus did that? And I'm thinking all this physical stuff and these stern verbal commands making this big ruckus, this is a scuffle. This is an altercation. And some of the rowdier Christians love this text because maybe you feel like you have the right now to make your own whip and turn up as Jesus did. Well, what makes this a good fight? This requires some explanation. This requires digging into this. Jesus is clearly angry, but the second thing I see in this text is that Jesus' anger is righteous. Jesus' anger is righteous, and you're going to want to pay attention to this because it matters what kind of anger you have. Jesus' anger is righteous. And the way I see it, there are at least, maybe more, but there are at least two kinds of anger, and you've probably guessed it by now. There is unrighteous anger, and there is righteous anger. And we know that Jesus is morally good, the gold standard for what's excellent and pure and holy and good. 
And so we can reasonably assume that Jesus' anger is righteous. You say, you know, he fashioned a whip. It's righteous. He ran off people's property. He probably whipped a person or two. It's righteous. He flipped tables and scattered coins. It is righteous. Because verse 17 tells us, then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scripture, passion for God's house will consume you. Talking about the Savior. And that's going to be important because we still have before us a Jesus who is fighting man. Now, this isn't permission to become violently angry at your whims. I've seen this passage misused all the time by people who want to pop off and who want to be angry, aggressive Christians. I've seen t-shirts online that says, saved, not soft. In fact, go ahead and put that picture up. I was on Amazon last night. This shirt says, let's keep it 100. I'm saved, not soft. And I found another one. You can go to the next one. Try Jesus, not me, because I throw hands. <laughs> now, you can go on Amazon and get this shirt today. And dozens more like him. Some of you are on there right now, or you already have it. I think this might violate the spirit of righteous anger. I think you might want to bring that before the Lord as we engage with this. But some of us, we're intrigued because you're like, oh, I get all angry all the time. And I feel this need to suppress my anger and to not turn up. But since Jesus used to turn up, why can't I turn up? But if you were to examine your anger, what you would discover is that often the trigger for your anger is that someone violates you. Someone offends you. Somebody cuts you off on the highway. Somebody disrespects you or somebody you like. Somebody eats your lunch out of the break room fridge yet again. And you say, is that righteous anger if I just go to Sheila and I just kind of give her the business real quick? That's probably not within the realm. Oftentimes, righteous anger won't be that which violates us or upsets us. But with Jesus, we see a certain kind, a certain strand of anger. This is righteous anger. The psalmist says in Psalm 4, verse 4, and Paul repeats it again in Ephesians 4, verse 26. He says, be angry, but don't sin. Be angry, but don't sin. That is to say, the scriptures don't offer a prohibition against anger. The scripture instead offers a prohibition against sinning while you're angry. And this is super important because some of us, we can trace our most dreadful mistakes back to being angry. And maybe you're too good, maybe you're too holy, but maybe you could take a visit to the county jail and just say, hey, just tell me your story real quick, bro. Why are you in here? What are you in for? Or sister, what are you in for? And much of what they will say in the county jail will trace back to what? Unfettered anger. Go visit the penitentiary or, or, or the juvenile detention center. And much of what they'll tell you will trace back, if they're honest, the kind of anger that wasn't righteous. 
But there is a good kind of anger. In fact, much of what's good about the world and much of the, rights, the wrongs that have been righted have been righted because somebody got righteously angry and said, why can't they drink from the same fountains? Why, why we got to be in the back? Why these people don't have any food? Wait, they can't live in a certain part of town, but these people can't. Like, if you look through history, some courageous person got righteously angry and said, this ain't right, let's do something. Even if we got to start a ruckus and a commotion, if we got to make somebody angry, this isn't right. Much of what's good and right about the world has come about because somebody got righteously angry. Righteous anger is good anger. You say, preacher, I'm interested in this righteous anger. It doesn't sound quite like the anger I typically flow with. Tell me some more. Well, the marks of righteous anger, especially if you search the scripture, is usually righteous anger is a reaction to actual sin. Not that somebody like upset your preferences or ate your lunch or didn't give you your way or made life inconvenient for you or the Wi-Fi's too slow or the drive through line's too long. You know, the silly things that we can get angry about. Typically, righteous angry, anger is triggered by actual sin. You're concerned about an offense against God rather than an offense against you. You take seriously, seriously this command to love God and to love others, and that informs how you see life. That informs what makes you happy when you see it. It informs also what gets you angry, what gets you fighting mad. concerns you that there's an offense against God, which is why it's relevant that the disciples remembered as Jesus is flipping tables and whip, swinging the whip, they said, the prophet said that passion for God's house, the temple, will consume me. And they remembered that that was a promise about Messiah. And maybe this cat is who he says he is. He's all bothered about this. Maybe, maybe they started to put it together. It's not about what just makes you angry, but how you carry out that anger is a display of Christian character. That is to say that you don't respond to sin by sinning yourself. My sons ask me all the time, hey, and they explain the scenario, this kid touched me, pushed me, or he took this from me, can I hit him next time? And you wouldn't believe, maybe you would believe, how many times I'm coaching them through scenarios, no, you can't hit this person this time. No, that's not the best practice <laughs> because we don't respond to sin by sinning. I wonder if you were to examine today what makes you angry. I mean, what makes you really angry. And some of you, if you're like me, you're, you're convicted to even ponder this because what you get angry about went up against the standard of what, what, what Jesus gets mad at, what, what angers you and what can send you fly into a blind rage in the grand scheme is, is silly by comparison. It is juvenile when you measure it up against God's standard. 
talking to you. I'm talking to me too. What makes you angry? Like yesterday, don't think too hard about it. Yesterday, what'd you get mad about? Friday, what'd you get mad about? Who'd you get mad at? How'd you carry that out? Was it righteous? Don't answer out loud. I don't want you to tell the truth. It wasn't far, far too often my anger isn't righteous. Now don't get me wrong. I could spin that thing, though. I could figure out a way in my mind to justify it and say, well, they had it coming. The kids, I mean, I told them that five times, not a sixth time. Up, up against this, it seems so small, doesn't it? Seems so inappropriate and void of Christian character. What makes you mad? Well, Jesus helps us with this because the third thing I see in this text is that Jesus is principled. He's principled. And this is going to help you a lot when it comes to managing your emotions. I talk about my kids a lot because, particularly in this realm, because it is my job. I feel responsible. I feel responsible to help them matriculate to the next level in life. I feel responsible to say to them regularly, hey, that's not how we manage our disappointment. Why are you mad? Why'd you do it that way? Why'd you respond that way? Why'd you hit him? Let's talk about it. Because, no, 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 no. Why? If you take the time to do this, They start to discover in real time that what they did, how they did it, and why they did it, it isn't rooted in anything that they want to duplicate. It's certainly not rooted in anything that they would want perpetrated toward them. And so the fact that Jesus was principled matters. Matters whether or not you're principled when you're trying to figure out how to manage your anger. It matters whether or not you're principled when you try to figure out which fights, come on, are worth fighting. It matters. And I imagine that as Jesus is taking time to fashion a whip, he had some time to think about that thing. And when he tied the last strand, he thought, yeah, this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. I imagine if I would slow down from time to time, by the time I'm done fashioning whatever proverbial instrument I'm going to exact my anger, I might go, ah. They're just chips. I'll just go get some more. (laughs) Oh, it's just traffic. We're going to see each other at the light anyway. (laughs) Jesus was principled principled, governed and grounded by a set of principles. Governed and grounded. Put that on a t-shirt. Don't get the, don't try me, you know, try Jesus t-shirt. Get the governed and grounded t-shirt by a set of principles, by godly statutes that have deep roots that don't move easily, that don't change easily. And this impacts, friend, every area of life. These principles inform your what you get angry about. How you respond to that anger. 
and the why and everything else. What does it mean to be principled? Definition says acting in accordance with morality and showing recognition of right or wrong. Or being principled acts with integrity and honesty with a strong sense of fairness, justice, respect for the dignity of the individual groups and community. Doesn't this sound like Jesus? Doesn't this sound like who we're supposed who we're supposed to be? Notice how void this is of self-interest. Notice how void this is of self-importance. Notice how void this is of self-preservation. Notice how void it is of self-centeredness, being principled as Jesus was. How it nudges you ever so gently and oftentimes ever so forcefully from the center of your world. You say, what's wrong with me being at the center of my world? Listen, everything is wrong with it. I know that's countercultural. The world tells you, do you. Be you. Forget everybody else. Figure out life for you. Didn't we just say last week? Didn't Jesus just tell us just last week that if you try to gain your life, if you got to hold on to your life, if you try to be the center of your world, guess what? You're going to lose it. And the upside down crazy advice that don't make no earthly sense is that if you give up your life, it's only then that you'll gain it. To live by this standard, to live by these principles, to, to, to let the outworking of your love and life be the sort of thing that is principled, rooted in the statutes and the truth that we find in Scripture, lived out in the sinless life of Jesus, man, will get us right every time. Every time. And on top of all that, your decisions will become easier to make. I'm always a little curious how some of us spend so much time deliberating over every decision. Some decisions are worth loads of deliberation. But what I've found, the longer that I walk with Jesus, if you've installed certain principles, love God, love people, I mean, those are pillars. That, that makes like half my decisions. The golden rule, the life of Jesus, like a lot of the decisions that I have to make, particularly with regard to how I relate to the other humans, particularly with regard to how I manage my anger, they aren't necessarily easy to live out because I'm always in that war against what I want to do, who I want to be if unaffected by the character of Christ. But the decisions are quite easily up against the standard of Jesus. Does this make sense what I'm saying? It was zeal for God's house and God's standard. That was the principle that ran through all of this behavior. It was the desire for justice. It was the observance that things weren't quite right. This is what we saw in the first installment of this. David runs up and Goliath is talking crazy and David can't make sense of why somebody hadn't taken care of it already. It's the same thing. Jesus is righteously angry because people have brought foolishness into the house of God. 
utter foolishness. Money changers in there changing coins, selling animals, selling doves. Now on its face, there's nothing wrong with this. These people have come from distant places to worship. What's wrong with this? What's true is that what likely started out as a ministry of convenience turned into hypocrites getting rich. All these millions of pilgrims that have come from distant lands with this foreign money that needs to be exchanged and all these devout Jewish pilgrims will need to worship in the temple and they didn't bring animals. Some slick person thought, oh, here we go. It's like whoever's setting the prices at the airport or at Six Flags or at the ballpark. They go, here we go. We got them. These foreign pilgrims coming in from Passover for Passover. They got to come to worship. They're devout. They need local money. They had to pay the temple tax which scholars estimated some 6% exchange rate on the money. That 6% would be half a day's wage for a regular working person. You do the math. It started out as a ministry of convenience. Let's help these people so that they don't have to bring these animals. We don't have animals here for them. Are people going to be coming with foreign money? Let's just make it easy. What probably started out as that turned into something sinister exploitative and don't get me started on these guys selling animals nobody wanted to bring these large animals from their hometowns and sure they were free to bring their animals but it was clunky not to mention the fact that in the temple the law required that the animal would be without blemish so you bring this animal only to have it rejected by the inspector nobody wanted to really deal with that but over time, what would happen is your animal that you brought was sure to be rejected by the person who was doing the inspecting so that you had to buy from their concessions. You see what I'm saying? And so people had come to rely on getting these animals at these inflated prices. Now imagine you are the incarnate deity. Imagine you're God in the flesh, veiled in flesh, as the songwriter says, and you walk into your house and it's just a bazaar of commodification. The temple courts are run over with money, coins, animals, not as a ministry of convenience, but as a means to exploit those coming to worship. Imagine you're God and you walk up on this. You're starting to get where this anger comes from. You started to picture how righteous this anger is. All of a sudden, a whip doesn't seem effective enough. Turning over. Tables of coins doesn't seem quite extreme enough in light of the egregious, flagrant offense. 
Jesus' actions are rooted in his disdain for what he observed. And principally speaking, Jesus saw people, namely the poor, being exploited. And it made him fighting, fighting mad. And on top of this, Jesus' goal, his aim, his mission was to remove the barriers for people to come to worship. And here these clowns were putting things in the way. Adding barriers, adding layers in front of the people so that it would be harder and more costly to come to worship. You see? Why Jesus is angry? And again, when we measure this up against what we get angry about, it seems kind of small, doesn't it? You feel a little silly, don't you? And on top of this is a person who is the chief facilitator of worship in God's house, I myself have to make sure that I don't fall into the trap of making this about the show and the lights and the production, which is why from time to time we scale it all back. It's just voices and a meager instrument because we ourselves run the danger of making this about something other than what it was intended to be. I'm talking about worship. You see what I'm saying? And so Jesus gets angry. He's not having it. He's become fighting mad. And this is what he's fighting about. And Jesus makes some people mad, as we'll see as we conclude the rest of this text. Some people start to come at Jesus, but Jesus doesn't back down from the conflict. And as they say in the vernacular, <laughs> Jesus invited the smoke. He wanted the smoke. I'm telling you when, you, when you, when you engage in good fights, you're going to get some smoke. You live a principled life and you get angry at the right things, you're going to get some smoke. Now, I realize that there might be some who are uninitiated here, and I want to explain what smoke means. <laughs> Since I'm over 40, I had to myself visit the Urban Dictionary or to ask one of the young people, okay, break this down for me. Okay, slow down now. Use it in a sentence. <laughs> but the term smoke and no smoke was popularized in Atlanta, Georgia. In reference to beef, the term smoke is laying in conflict, beef or heat. Of course, no smoke, on the other hand, means I don't want any smoke. I don't want any beef. I don't want any conflict, right? And so to invite the smoke is to say, bring it. This is a good fight. We're going to take it. Yeah, we'll take it. And Jesus invites it. Because you're going to get plenty of smoke when you get angry about the right stuff, when you stand up for the stuff that matters and the people that matter, the stuff that matters to God. You, ex you start standing up and speaking up for the exploited and the powerless, you're going to get some smoke. 
stand up for something unpopular, somebody's going to have a problem with it. You endeavor in this cultural moment to uphold the standard of God, you will get some heat. It doesn't matter what subject is. If it's about the sanctity of life and the preciousness of the unborn, you're going to get some smoke. If you uphold God's standard about human sexuality and where the foul lines are, where in which we, we can use our bodies, you are going to get some smoke. Start talking about justice and racism and oppression and white supremacy. Start talking about it. You will get all the smoke you can handle. Go on social media. You can post silly, crazy, stupid stuff every day, all day, and nobody will say anything. They will give you likes and smiles. But talk about something that matters. Talk about lifting up the underneath and tearing down systems and the powers and the intimidators and folks who you didn't even know were on Facebook will give you all the smoke you can. You didn't even know your 78-year-old Uncle Larry was even on Facebook till you started posting about racism. Say, Larry, you ain't send me no cards, no money. You ain't come to the wedding, but now you're going to DM me because... You're going to get the smoke. And Jesus was no different. Jewish leaders said, man, you're messing up our hustle right here, bro. Like, who, who gave you authority to do this? They say, if you are who you say you are, do a miracle or something. Like, do, do a miracle or something so we can believe you. And Jesus never takes this way. He never takes this way. It's not that he can't do miracles. He just won't under these circumstances. If you read the previous verses, he performed his first miracle. Turn water into wine. His mom said, let's do whatever he said. Jesus said, boom, keep the party. Keep the party going. He can do it. But he doesn't take this bait, but he does invite the smoke. He says, all right, verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, this is so meaningful as we march toward Holy Week, right? It has hints and notes of suffering and sacrifice. They are clueless. They don't know what he's talking about, but those of us who are initiated know. The disciples are... They'll put it together in the end. They're probably clueless at the moment, but they'll put it together. Verse 20, what? They exclaim, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days. But Jesus, when he said temple, he meant his own body. The scriptures tell us that when he was killed and resurrected, the disciples put that thing together. They said, oh, that's what he was talking about. That's what he was talking about. He, he was inviting us. He said, hey, bring it. That's what I come to do anyway. And how many know when you, when you know who you are, you know whose you are, you live your life with some principles and some standards, you, you, you get used to the intimidators coming out of the woodwork and challenging your authority. Why you believe that about sexuality? Why you believe that about why you raise kids? How you believe, what, on what authority do you stand on? But when you know who you are, you can stand there. Jesus took them up on this offer, and boy, did he. Because they would eventually destroy the temple that he invited them to destroy. They would eventually whip him and beat him and humiliate him and hang him up. Sinless man on a sinner's cross. They took him up on it. He wanted the smoke. He took it for you and for me. 
But you need to see that it was a result of righteous anger and a willful decision to run toward the smoke, run toward the good fight, rather than away from it. And so this brings so much stuff in worship team. You can make your way up. This brings so much stuff for me into sharper focus. If this is the measuring stick for how I'm supposed to live my life and, and what's supposed to be important to me and how I'm supposed to manage my emotions and my anger and how am I supposed to appropriate uh, my Christian faith, I stand before you utterly challenged. And there's a shred of me that wonder, because I've got so much work to do in this regard, if I'm even qualified to, to bring this message today. And so if you're wondering, man, I sure have a long way to go. Listen, you're, you're in good company, friend. You don't just have work to do. We've got work to do. We've got to come on the same page as Christ so that what makes him smile makes us smile and what makes him, what makes him fighting mad makes us fighting mad. and examine how we come into his house to worship and what we make this. As our church grows and as we think about expansions and going to second services and expanding the foyer and all those things that we don't get swept up into the commercialization of worship, the commodification of what we come here to do, there's loads to think about. How does this land on you this morning? What are you getting angry about? Are your fights good fights? Are you at the center of your world and your universe? You running toward the smoke like the good smoke, the kingdom smoke? Are you fighting the fights that's going to free the oppressed, bind up the brokenhearted? Share the good news with those who are poor. Don't answer out loud. Don't answer right now. Sit with it for a while, if you will. Ponder it for a day or two, if you must. Nothing wrong with a little ruckus. But it needs to be a good one. There's nothing wrong with anger. It's got to be good anger, though. Righteous anger. Certainly ain't nothing wrong with the worship. But we got to come with pure hearts and right motives. And so some of us, if we sang this song, I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I made it. It's all about you. I'm sorry, Lord, for being at the center of my universe and snapping at anybody who would try to nudge me off the center, including you. It's all about you. <laughs> so that's got a little ring to it, anyway. Why don't you stand with me if you can?
Come Holy Spirit. As we close in worship, may it be in spirit and in truth. May we wrestle this text down to the floor this week and extract from it every challenge, every bit of meaning so that we might be found blameless before you. We might be found getting mad about the right things. Come Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.